Thank you for joining us here at Crossword Church for this week's message. Our desire is to see people's lives transform as they develop an authentic relationship with Jesus. We would like to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So take a moment and visit us online at mycrosswordchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. And so we are talking about choices today. Last week we talked about the power and the purpose or the purpose and power of discipline. And firstly we talked about the discipline of training. And we understood that the scriptures for the believer, the scriptures are the foundation for training. And then we understand that it's important for us to know the purpose of our training. According to Paul, he states that like an athlete, that we should embrace and engage the discipline of training in our lives because we're doing it to win our prize. Everybody say our prize. Our prize. And then we talked about the fact that there are two types of discipline, self-discipline and godly discipline. And that God's word is the source of our discipline and also the life in the spirit. And we looked at Galatians chapter 5, around verse 23. This is just a recap. We also asked the question, why is it important for us to exercise self-discipline in our lives? And then what happens when we don't walk in self-discipline? Then we, dis- we, we talked about the rewards of discipline and throughout the time last week we talked about seven principles of discipline today we're going to talk about thoughts just look at your neighbor and just say how is your thought life I, I, I believe that this subject is something that the church, uh, we really need to get a handle on it because uh, if we don't get a handle on how we think, uh, we will keep doing the same old, same old. The Bible teaches us that our thoughts are the determining factor which controls our actions. As Solomon puts it in Proverbs 23, 7, he says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Uh, This means that our lives are a sum total of our choices and that our choices are a sum total of our life and of our thoughts. It is the thoughts of a person that determines the outcome of a person's life. Paul continues to elaborate on this. And he says in in Romans chapter 8 verse 6, Paul makes this statement. He says, For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now we got to break this down a little bit. Because if you notice he says uh, that carnal mindedness does not lead to death. It actually is death. According to Paul, there is literally a kind of thinking which is deadly for the believer and the unbeliever. Uh, the deadly thinking is referred to as being carnally minded, while the life-giving thinking is referred to be spiritually minded. It's amazing that it's in the church that we sometimes settle for carnal-minded thinking. 
and, and, and we think that to be carnal-minded is okay. But what we need to understand that carnal-minded thinking leads, it doesn't only lead to death, but it is death. So let me break this down just a little bit more. The spiritually-minded person is one who lives with a renewed mind in the Word of God, while the carnally-minded person is one who lives in the futility of their own minds or in the vanity of their own minds, which is daily being shaped by worldly thinking. See, the thing about church is that when we come to church and when we gather together and we're receiving the word, the word only becomes powerful in us when we act upon the word that we hear. It's not about how much word we can get in. It's about how much work can we can have work in us and then work through us. Amen? No one consistently performs differently than the way they think. Let me see this again. No one performs differently from the way that they think. So when you hear a person keeps talking, and they keep talking, but then you look at their doing, and what they're doing is not equating to what they're talking, there is a disconnect. Everybody say disconnect. See, see the glory of our lives is that our thinking must affect our speaking and affect our doing. And when there's congruency between what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, and what I'm doing, then there is power that's working on the inside of me. But when I'm, when I'm, when I'm saying something and doing something else, it means that there's an inconsistency. It means that I am double-minded, and when I'm double-minded, there is no power at work on the inside of me. And so when you hear people are simply saying they're going to do, watch their lives. Because it's actually what they do that actually tells you what they're thinking about. That wasn't on the notes, but let's continue. We all know this guy. His name is Mark Twain. And Mark Twain makes this statement that I liked. And he says, what a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none other than himself. Hear what Mark is saying. He says, all day long, the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his history. I would modify a little bit of what Twain is saying by making this statement that our thought life forms the basis for and is largely revealed in our actions and our words. And so for us to understand the critical element of who we really are is not just in our words, but it's in what we do. It's in what we do. And it's our thought life that holds the most weight in our actual lives. Our physical life is reflective of our thought life. And if we don't learn how to discipline our thinking, we will simply be doing the same thing and never really get a different result. See, the only thing that remains about us when we're gone, 
uh, are the results of our thinking and our choices. The results, the results that have been uh, attributed to our life. Jonathan Edwards, a renowned evangelist uh, in the early church, makes this statement. He puts it this way. He says, the ideas and the images in a man's, in a man's mind are the invisible powers that consistently govern them. Oh my goodness. The ideas and the images. Every day you wake up, you have ideas and images that are being either perpetrated on you or you are conjuring up in yourself. Every day advertisers, we are in today in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, the greatest sporting event of the world is taking place today. And if you did not know this, they have uh, upped the ante on the price for a 30-second commercial. Now it's a, a, a surplus of $5 million. Now the, the, the social scientists have done all the homework and they understand that in a 30-second window, we can get literally hundreds of possibly millions of people watching an event. And if they can trigger your thinking, they can trigger a behavior. Think about this. Oh, my goodness. Therefore, it is crucial for us to discipline our thought life by bringing it into subjection to Christ. And beginning to learn how to think biblically. Not just in certain aspects of your life, but in all aspects of your life. Every day the world presents worldviews. And we have to be grounded in a worldview that honors God. And we allow that worldview to govern how we process information. And how that information affects our behavior. One of the most helpful things I have learned as a Christian in the Christian life is that all sin, listen, all sin begins in our thoughts. Which the Bible sometimes call the heart. So Jesus makes this profound statement about the power of the thought life in Matthew chapter 5. Beginning at verse 28. Matthew chapter 5 verse 28. Jesus is speaking and I want us to listen very clearly to what Jesus is saying. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So here Jesus is pulling from the Ten Commandments. Jesus is pulling from the law. Literally the righteousness of the law. He's pulling from the law. He says, you've heard it says that thou shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who so much as looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is saying, if you look at the woman with a desire for her, where's that desire being formed? In our thought life, we have already committed adultery with her. This is the power of thinking. Jesus continues to elaborate on a greater level. If you flip over to Mark chapter 7, around verse 20, Jesus expands the thinking here. And he says this in verse 20. What comes out of a man that defiles a man. 
So Jesus is making a statement here. He's saying there's something that comes out of a person that literally defiles the person. A lot of times we think that our defilement comes from out here. Oh my goodness, help me, Holy Ghost. But there is a defilement that happens on the inside of us. And Jesus is making this statement. Verse 21 says, for from within, everybody say within. See, that's why we need to be in touch with our thought life. We need to be in touch with what's going on on the inside of us. From within, out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts. Adulteries, fornications, and murders, and thefts, and, and covetousness, and wickedness, and deceit, and lewdness. We don't use that word much today, but let me just expand here. Filthiness, vulgarity, and profanity. An evil eye blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And I would add, or a woman, what's going on within you? How is your thought life? No one commits these outward sins without first committing them in their minds. See, if we are to grow in godliness, we must discipline our thought life to win the battle over our flesh and the constant pressure to conform to worldly thinking. Constant pressure. So let's just look a little bit at what does it mean, what does it look like to pursue excellent thinking? And Paul is going to write now to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to just analyze this text for a moment. I'm going to begin in verse 1, reading from the NASB Bible, New American Standard Bible translation. He starts out and he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm. So he's about to give them some information that they, that they should stand firm in. And he calls it this way. Everybody say the way. So that's one of the reasons why around here we say we need to live the way. We're saying live the way of Christ. Live the way of scripture. Live the way of love. Live the, live the way of peace. And you can take that on and on and on. Verse 2, this is going on in the church, so let's look at verse 2 real quick. He says, I urge Eudea and I urge Sentichi uh, to live in harmony. The NIV says to be of the same mind. The New Living Translation said to settle your disagreement in the Lord. So apparently in this church, there is a disagreement that everyone in the congregation knows that's happening regarding these two women. He says, indeed, verse 3, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This is interesting because then verse 6 he says, be anxious for nothing. How many need to understand that a lot of times 
we start getting anxious because for some reason we feel as though what's befalling us, God is not aware of it. And so he's telling the church, um, God is near. And then verse six, he says, be anxious for nothing. Why should I not be anxious? Why? Because God is near. Uh, sometimes when you wake up in the morning and, and you can feel the pressures of the day, you just got to arrest your spirit and arrest your thinking and say, no, 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 God is near. Oh, my goodness. And begin to talk to yourself. Begin to reframe your thought life. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 is the key th text. He says, now finally, finally, brethren, whatsoever, whatever thing is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report or good repute or admirable, if there is any excellence or virtue, and if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. One translation says, think on these things. We do understand the word dwell here literally means to reside in these things. That there's a, there's a thinking that we need to reside in. There's a thinking that we need to live in. Verse 9 says, and the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is framing the context for this church to understand how to think excellently how to think godly first point in verse 8 of this chapter paul exhorts us to develop a godly and excellent thought life practicing verse 8 is essential if we're going to develop and maintain healthy relationships see the, the women were having disagreements because of the way that they were thinking you know, James says, where comes uh, strife and contention? He says that there is a, a warfare, there's a struggle that's going on on the inside of us. And so, to understand the importance of right thinking, it will help us to govern and to maintain health, healthy relationships. A biblical thought life is also integral for a life of joy, as we see in verse 4. It's also important to have a gentle spirit, as we see in verse 5. Now, there's a misconception about gentleness, so I need to just, uh, do, a, just do a mini exposition. Everybody say mini, Pastor. That's a mini exposition on verse 5 real quick. In addition to rejoicing, Paul is encouraging his readers to be known as gentle, patient, self-controlled people. See, the Greek word here for gentle literally means forbearing. It means to be equitable or fair. It means to be reasonable or moderate. That's what gentleness is all about. It's literally strength on the power or under control. Christ's followers are not to be seen ease, as easily angered or arrogant or undisciplined 
or foolish people. Listen to this. People that are in the body of Christ should not be known as people that are arrogant and impatient and undisciplined. Uh, have you ever seen any of those people in God's house? But rather, we should be known as patient, reasonable, disciplined people who know how to uh, handle difficulties and disagreements with maturity. See, when we have difficulties that we can't work through, it is a result of our thinking. It's a result of our thought processes. When we learn how to submit how we think towards God and one another, it will affect how we deal and how we engage with conflict. Oh, I don't have the time to sit and talk about conflict today. Mm, Jesus. This is important. This is important. Further in the, in the text, a biblical thought life is also necessary if we're going to be prayer, praying people and if we're going to walk in the peace of God. There are two pieces that the Bible teaches us. There's first peace with God. It means that when I'm far from God, I am, um, I am up, God is opposed to my sinful lifestyle. And so I don't have peace with God. Christ comes and now I have peace with God. So that's a heavenly peace. I'm connected. But now there's a peace that he gives us that now I can walk in life and I can have the peace of God walking in me and working in me. So here's what we need to know. This is what Paul is not teaching in this text. Paul is not teaching positive thinking. We got to deal with this a little bit today because there's a lot of TV shows, a lot of tele televangelists, a lot of stuff going on in the body that I just got to deal with biblically. So bear with me. This concept, positive thinking, has been propagated and popularized by the world of clinical psychology, the self-help industry, and contemporary preachers and teachers that cross denominational lines and they're espousing their doctrine of positive confession. <laughs> now, if you listen today, there is an overarching title that's being used by a lot of these people. And the title is this, that now they are a life coach. So you have pastors that are life coaches. You have clinical psychologists that are life coaches. And you have the self-help gurus who are life coaches and the word sounds very admirable and very adoring let's just kind of peek into the self-help uh, industry just for a second can, can we do that just for a second an author by the name of matthew jones he published an article on inc uh, magazine in on their online publication so inc.com and this is what he titled the article 11 billion reasons why the help, the self-help industry does not want you to know the truth about happiness. The truth about happiness. Because it's, it's, it's interesting that the world is pursuing happiness. And even people in God's kingdom find themselves pursuing happiness. So he starts out his article like this. Most Americans are unhappy. Despite 
the abundance of material wealth, the, ideal, the idealism of democratic values, and the flashiness of their new iPhones, most people are suffering. He says, and the brutal truth is that several industries, including the self-help industry, are profiting off of the emotional pain people are seeking and their quick fixes that they promise. Y'all need to listen to this. Four areas that the self-help industry or the self-improvement industry, they target. Four, four main areas. Self-improvement, personal coaching, stress management, and weight loss. Stress management itself can be pared down into three other uh, categories or three main reasons. So you have relational stress that you need to manage. Uh, you have financial stress that you need to manage. And then you can have job-related stress that you need to manage. And if you pay me $400 an hour, I can help you with that. Let me continue. He says, um, see, part of being an American isn't just getting ill from living the, in the superficial society that values materialism, consumerism, and working way too many hours in a week. It is literally trying to buy your happiness one book at a time and one pill at a time. People are brainwashed into thinking that if I read enough self-help books that my, or take enough medicine or pills, my problems will evaporate and I will finally find happiness. Oh, Jesus, help me. Back in 2008, which is 10 years ago, the self-help industry va was valued at $11 billion. This is just the industry. This is not the medication that goes along with it. Y'all get that? Okay. That's a lot of books on motivational or, and motivational speeches that have failed literally 40 million people suffering from anxiety, 15 million people suffering from depression, 8 million people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. The numbers in 2016, now this is just dealing with the, with the medication side of it. The U.S. spent over $440 billion just on the medications alone. I hope y'all are getting what the Spirit of God is saying. We need to change our thinking. So, 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 so what Paul is not saying what he's not teaching is the power of positive thinking. However, it is a wonderful and impactful thing for us to meditate and rehearse upon the promises of God in their proper contexts. Because we are called to renew our minds in the word. Romans 12, 2. We're called to hide the word of God in our hearts, according to Psalms 119, verse 11. And we're called to speak the word of God to ourselves and to each other in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. As believers, we must remember that Jesus came to give us joy. Everybody say joy. 
which is a state of our being, a state of our heart and our mind, a state of our thinking. He did not come to give us happiness. Because happiness is a state of our circumstances and is based on how I'm feeling today. So I can be married to you and felt happy, but because you do something that I don't like, all of a sudden I'm not happy with you anymore because it's circumstantial. Jesus, Jesus, help me. See, joy is spiritual and it is internal, while happiness is natural and it is external. The church has been caught in the trap of pursuing happiness when we should be walking in the joy of the Lord. Why? The joy of the Lord is our strength. So he tells us, he tells us what we should think about. What we should spend our time thinking on. We should think on things that are true. Things that are honorable. Things that are right and pure and lovely of good report. Things that are admirable. If we would spend more time thinking good of people. Let me, let me continue. So let's just look at this list real quick, okay? Oh, Jesus, help us. He says, he starts out, he said, first, think on what is true. What is true? What do you know to be true about yourself? Most importantly, what do you know to be true about your God? See, if you don't spend time with him, you won't realize and understand the truth of who he is. There is a knowledge that comes based on experience coupled with knowledge. What I mean is, it's not just enough for the pastor to be telling you about God. There is, there is an importance for you to get to know God yourself. To spend time with your heavenly father yourself. To understand that he knows everything that you're going through and he is there with you through it all. So the word here, we're talking about truth. Think on what is true. The word um, literally means true as to fact. It denotes the actuality of a thing. The true is the true is that is actually what corresponds with reality. God himself is the only final test for what is true. And so and so a few years ago the church has been having this struggle against what is absolute truth Versus what is relative truth. Y'all know about this, right? Relative truth is it's true for me. Or it might be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. Now, if we had the time to break that down, we would see how uh, really silly that thought process is. Because if, it's, if things are really relative, if you were to go to the bank and deposit $10,000... And the next week you decide you're going to go withdraw that $10,000 and the banker comes to you and says, well, uh, you know, you may think you deposited 10000 but we only see 1000 How many know all of a sudden you're walking in absolute truth? You'll be like, no, 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 here's my deposit, here's my slip. I de- you know. so, so the principle of relative truth does not apply across all planes of life. It's subjective thinking. So understanding the truth about God, God is unchanging, which means his moral standards as revealed in his word that literally stems from his holy nature, they too are unchanging. 
I don't care how many new translations they come up with and they try to alter the word of God. The word of God stands sure. The, the challenge is that is the believer not knowing how to rightly divide the word. So we get excited about coming and having someone tell us what to believe. As opposed to spending time and dividing the word of God of, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, see, uh, John 3, 3 attests that, you know, God is true. Paul writes to Timothy, and then he writes to Titus. In 1 Titus chapter 1, verses 3, and actually the whole of 1 Titus, if you were to read that, that would be awesome. But Paul writes to Titus, who was from Crete. Now, this is interesting. The Cretans had a reputation in verse 12. They all were liars. Just, just think of all the people coming into Minnesota to the Super Bowl today. And our, our reputation, our brand was not Minnesota nice, but Minnesota liars. Meaning all... See, when the scripture says the Cretans were lies, it meant a whole region of people, not just a person or a family, but everybody in that town was known for lying. I'm sure if we had that reputation, you wouldn't have that many people coming to the game. Because who wants to be associated with a whole people being liars? But in, in you know, around verse 3, Paul writes and he says, God cannot lie. And he made known his truth by his word. Jesus also claimed that he was truth in John 14, verse 6. Now, opposite to God and Christ, Satan, on the other hand, is a liar. But not only just a liar, he is the father, the progenitor of lies. That, yeah, that, that is John chapter 8, verse 44. So he is a deceiver and he uses sin to deceive, entice those that are sneered by it. Okay. We're not going to get through all of this. Uh, the next thing Paul says for us to think about is, he says, think on whatever is honorable. Whatever is noble. The word literally means that which inspires reverence, awe, or worthy of respect. Think on what is worthy of respect. All this is so applicable to everyone. Um, specifically to marriages also. It is. So this idea of noble thinking. Or being worthy of respect, it is applied to the characteristics necessary for those who are deacons and deaconesses in the church. This is 1 Timothy 3, um, verse 8. It also says that elders should keep their children under control with all dignity. <laughs> uh, that's verse 4. And then literally all believers should lead a life of tranquility and quietness in all godliness and discipline. And that's 
First Timothy chapter two, verse two. So this idea of noble thinking is vitally important in our Christian walk. I'm going to give you one more. Last one for the day. Think on what is right. Okay. So if there is right thinking, then there must be what? Wrong thinking. See, uh, back in uh, Romans, Paul talks about that, right? In Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Right thinking is known as being spiritually minded. While wrong thinking is known as being carnally minded. So the idea that I must evaluate my thinking is virtually important and vitally important to us. Because I don't want to be stuck on the lane where I'm thinking uh, the wrong type of thinking. Now, in the body of Christ, sometimes we tend to gloss over things and truths that Jesus is teaching. An example, Jesus says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is not good, is death, right? He also says there is a broad way and then there is a narrow way. He says the narrow way, uh, very few people find the narrow way, but the broad way is bustling with people traveling on on the broad way. Why is that? Because the Broadway invites me to think and be and feel exactly what I want to think, be and feel. The Broadway is literally being conducted by the conductor of our cosmos. The conductor of the world system is literally being conducted by the enemy of our soul. And what we tend to do is if we're not having our minds renewed by the word of God, we're dancing to the tune of the conductor who is designed to oppose and destroy us. And so for us as believers, it's not just how I feel but it should be what I know because sometimes what I feel uh, is not good based on what I know. But what we tend to do is we go with what I feel, what makes me feel good. That's the reason why discipline is important because discipline says I will do what I know is right and not just what feels good to me. And so what we're looking for, what we're believing God for is, for, is for God to send us people that are willing to conform to his way of thinking. People that wants to make that step off of the broad road and start walking on the narrow road. <laughs> Let me just finish this up. The word is used here of God himself. It's speaking of God's righteousness. Romans 3, 26. And then it's also speaking of the righteousness of Christ in Acts 3, 14. Here's a scripture we're going to land on today. We are called to be God's righteous people. 1 John 3, 7 and 8 reads... Little children, don't you just love this? This is the shepherd. This is 
This is not the life coach of the church. This is the shepherd. This is, this is the one that's watching up for the souls of the people. And he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. There are a lot of people gathering today across multi-complexes and buildings. And, and they're all going through the, the, what looks like to be a great experience. Whether it be in the church or in the world. But they're not connected. He says, let no one deceives you. The one who practices, here's the litmus test. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Now, it's not saying that if you sin, you're of the devil. It's saying if you practice sin. It's saying that if sinning is a lifestyle. And remember, we, we defined this a few weeks ago. To him that knows to do it good and you don't do it, it's sin to you. I'll just leave that there. Wrestle that out. Let me read verse 8 again. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil have sinned from the beginning. The son of man appeared. Now, he's about to give us a purpose statement for Jesus, a purpose statement for those who are the children of God. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the work of the devil. When we begin to think with godly thoughts, our whole posture and mission changes. It's simply this to glorify God. And to destroy the works of the devil. See, we cannot destroy the works of the devil if we're so easily impressed by the works of the devil. I hope you're all hearing me. The church has become impressed by the works of the enemy. And there is a seduction. And we need to know God. According to his word and not according to what we think. Amen. Let's stand together.